episode 245 of the PJ Archive, is an interview I did with the popular English singer, broadcaster and media personality, Leslie Garrett, who has helped make opera accessible to a wider audience. A great Yorkshire character, affectionately nicknamed the Diva from Doncaster, Leslie has had hit records, sold-out concerts, starred in stage and TV shows, and sung at top sporting events. This interview took place in 1995 at the London Coliseum, home of the English National Opera, where she was then their principal soprano. She was promoting her fifth solo studio album, entitled Soprano in Red. Is this classic Leslie Garrett stuff? <laughs> no, it's a bit of a departure, to be honest. It's basically repertoire from 1850 to 1930, which is an incredibly wide range. It's, I suppose, theoretically, it's operetta, but I'm very nervous of describing it as such because I feel that puts it in a real pigeonhole and people have got as many preconceptions about operetta as they have about opera. And the range of music available within the umbrella title operetta is fantastic. I would go as far as to say I've never done an album with, with as great a range of vocal styles and colour, even though, strictly speaking, it is all operetta. Uh, it's quite difficult to define operetta, and it basically is that period. And there are one or two sort of rules governing it. The, the stories tend to be slightly lighter, I think. But we've taken operetta from all over the world as well, rather than sticking to one particular composer or one country, which I think is, is quite often done, because I, I do find that a bit boring. So we've, we've got operetta from Austria, um, from France, from America and from Britain. And there's some uh, little gems, and nearly all of it, I think everybody will hum in the bath. It's stuff that you know everybody knows. But I, I do always like to include a couple of areas that aren't well known, um, for my own interest as much as anything, and also because I, I think they, they're worthy of being heard. What's exciting to me about this record, particularly, is that it was inspired by a dress, which is very, very unusual. I had designed for me by David Emmanuel the most wonderful red dress you've ever seen, which I think people who saw the programme would know, Jobs for the Girls, uh, where Linda Robson and Pauline Quirk and myself hijacked Kenwood, the Kenwood Festival for an evening and did a, an, a wonderful rendition, or the girls were fantastic, of um, Rule Britannia. And uh, no one who saw that, I don't think, would forget this amazing red dress that David made for me. And I was so inspired by this dress that I thought, I want to make an album to go with the, with the dress. And it was such a ball gown. It was a real Cinderella gone with the wind ball gown. And I thought, I'm going to use that as my starting point for the music I want to perform on this album. So that's inspired all the choices really and so a lot of the music is 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 dance music um a lot of the music is has a kind of well i suppose i suppose a, a ball reference if you like you know chambre separée and oh that we've done stuff from the dancing years and lots and lots of them of them are, are absolutely directly connected with this amazing dress and then we had a very very talented photographer take pictures of me in the dress kate garner and the pictures are so stunning i'm so excited about them that we we are just using those pictures in the album as opposed to other albums when i've shown pictures of, of me in lots of other roles that i've done so for me this is the most satisfying album because it's the most 
homogenous is that the right word you know it's it, it has a real feel an all consuming and um, sort of through conceived if you like feel to it and I've always striven for that because I like albums to, to, to have that quality to have the quality of them not being thrown together but them to have been sort of conceived and built and executed I think we've succeeded with this more than any other one I've ever done and that I've been wearing this dress all summer and all the concerts I'm doing at the moment and the, the few that I've got now leading up to Christmas, because I'll be busy with the opera, I'm going to be wearing this red dress. I'm only going to be seen in red from now on, <laughs> because we've called the album Soprano in Red, we, just for such an obvious title. So I've sort of done a tour to precede the album, which is a bit crazy, I agree. But I'm hoping that uh, for the next album, really, that we should have a tour to follow it, because it, it makes sense and, uh, and it's exciting, it's fun to do it that way. Now, I think a lot of people are very concerned about how your voice is now, because I think it was only last June that uh, you had a voice problem in an opera, didn't you? Oh, I had a catastrophe. It was the most dramatic thing that's ever happened to me. I suddenly, in the last performance of uh, The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagoni that we were doing here at ENO, in the very last performance, halfway through the show, I was singing fine. I'd just done the Alabama song and singing great, and suddenly I lost my voice. It was every singer's complete and utter nightmare. It just went. And I couldn't get it back or at least for that performance, I couldn't get it back. Um, fortunately, the role was made famous by Lottie Lenya, who sang it in a very, very, how raspy. can I describe it, raspy, uh, Tallulah Bankhead, would people know her? Gravel voice. Gra uh, gravel, she sang, that's the best way, she's famous for singing, uh, singing the role in a rather gravel-voiced mm -hmm. way. So, <laughs> so it was not inappropriate to sound like a complete and utter... Uh, yes, it wasn't very good. It was not uh, inappropriate to sound like Rod Stewart. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, and the, the, looking back, it was really quite hysterical. At the minute I got off stage at the end of the scene with my colleagues when they were doing the scene change, the, all my colleagues just sort of beat a path to my door with all their remedies. I mean, I had no idea singers were so neurotic because, I, I mean, you're lucky if you find an aspirin in the bottom, bottom of my handbag, quite honestly probably the least neurotic singer I know. I mean, you might find a couple of nappy pins and some wet wipes, but <laughs> the odd tub of pseudo cream, but you wouldn't find anything for the, for the throat in the bottom of my handbag. And I had um, herbal tea bags from Switzerland that one of my colleagues swore by. Uh, I had special linctus from Ada, from Adrian. I had um, the most, these amazing, oh no, it's herbal tea bags from Dallas, Texas. That was from Bobby. It was special lozenges from Switzerland. And it was a, a special linctus I had from, uh, from Ada and uh, something from somebody else. And th they were so concerned. I can't tell you how concerned they were. And it was lovely, but I couldn't get this, my voice to come back. Anyway, I got through the show. We had the understudy on standby but I felt that whilst ever I could get something out and I could get a I could I knew I could do a good performance even though I didn't have my proper voice um, I felt I owed it to the public to get out there and do it you know the show must go on is, is absolutely my, my watchword my motto one of them anyway and uh, <laughs> and, I, and I got through the show and I, I was very very uh, um, overcome by the, the ovation I received from the public who were so kind to me and so with me and, and I think the show went down well. Uh, and then I went off to the um, Royal Throat, Nose and Ear Hospital in Grays Inn Road, which my having a GP for a husband is a wonderful thing sometimes because he got on the Jungle Telegraph and um, uh, found out the best place for me to go. And I went to see an amazing man called David Howard there. And subsequently I've been working uh, with a, a, a similarly amazing person called Philippa Radcliffe. And Mr Howard to tell you the whole story, discovered that I'd actually burst a blood vessel in my larynx. A little tiny capillary had popped and had flooded one side of my larynx. 
with, uh, with blood. And they think what caused it was the air conditioning in my room. It was really the last straw, the final straw. I had been incredibly tired. We'd been going through a very bad patch with the children and they'd been um, a lot of sleepless nights. It is extremely difficult having children aged two and one and a big career. I mean, I can't tell you how, how what, it is just very hard work. And uh, we'd had a lot of sleepless nights and I was struggling a wee bit. Uh, and I was due to take a break, and I really literally had that performance and one concert to do, and I got a fortnight's break. And they think that it was a combination of, of being very tired, and uh, I'd got the end of a cold as well, or it was actually more, it was hay fever really, so I had quite a lot of catarrh. And I'd been in my dressing room early for a, a costume fitting, so I'd been sitting in a very cold air-conditioned dressing room for about three hours, and then I went out onto a very hot, humid stage. And I've since learnt that that is fatal, you know, that that, that is the last thing singers should do, to then sing uh, relatively taxing music. Taxing in that it, it was a very... How can I describe it? Kurt Weill isn't traditional opera. It's very satisfying music, but it's, it's, it's quite, one has to slightly adapt one's technique right. to deal with it. How long were you out of action for? Three weeks uh, in the end. Actually, it, the problem was very, very minor. And you're completely recovered now. I, um, it took about, about three weeks for the, con for the condition to subside. I did uh, physiotherapy with Philippa, which I'm continuing to do, because we discovered that my sinuses are very blocked, and uh, that contributed to the problem. I've always had a catarrh problem, and they're sorting that out for me. I'm also having to re-educate my speaking voice because I talk in my speaking voice is too low and, too, and basically too sexy. And I've got to try and raise it and make it better supported and rather higher. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the news on that. Uh, and it's absolutely fine. But what I'm discovering is I'm improving. It's been a real blessing in disguise, which is why I'm happy to talk about it, because sorting out my sinuses and raising my speaking voice has really improved my singing voice, and I'm finding that my singing voice is much stronger and much clearer as a result. I didn't think at my ripe old age of 40 that I had much more new technique to learn, but with these people and with my singing teacher, Joy Mammon, who's also uh, very, very keen to develop the possibilities through the work I'm doing at the hospital would improve my voice no end. It's extraordinary, actually. I'm very excited about it. And hopefully people will hear on this record the improvements. At the time that your voice disappeared, were you fearing the worst that your career was over? Oh, absolutely. Every singer feels, fears the worst. Every cold you get, every, you know, every time you, your voice is not 100% through a cold or a throat infection, you think, that's it, I'll never sing again, you know. But seriously... Having been through quite a major illness early in my career that wasn't actually directly connected with the voice but which caused me to lose my voice. I had a very bad kidney problem and I lost my confidence, my physical confidence to the extent that I found I couldn't sing. I, I did have faith in myself and I did, I did really truly, but I, I believed I would sort the problem out. I now, I now never feel that there's a vocal problem or any problem really that I can't with the help of other people and through you know with with with, with a sensible application that I can't solve a much more positive thinking especially since having the children than uh, than I used to be that kind of oh my god I've sung my last um, feeling is uh, for me a thing of the past uh, although it's a very common singer's reaction but I'm much more practical than that actually and I just will solve the problem it has because I have to sing and it's as simple as that because you've come so incredibly far in your life, do moments like that have extra worries for you, though, do you think? Because you really have, your life has turned around completely. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my life, I must admit. It's, I feel very, very lucky and very blessed. 
I'm doing something I adore doing, and at the same time, I've got a wonderful home and children, so I do value it so very highly. It's, what's happened to me is not something I take for granted or something that I'm flippant about. I am very grateful to whoever's up there looking after me. Coming from very humble beginnings, though, have you often had sort of nightmares that, you know, you might lose it all one day and have to go back to living in a council house? Oh, that was a very snobby, snotty question, Peter. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with my, as you put it, humble council house no, beginnings. I wouldn't imply that there was anything wrong <laughs> with it. Though. Winding you up. Um, I think one day I will stop singing. I think that's inevitable. Mm. But I'm not afraid of that. I think what's more important to me than anything is that I keep developing. For me, that's through, at the moment, that's through singing and through motherhood. That's a, a big development, a, big le a huge learning curve. But uh, I don't think I'd ever go back to anything. I don't think I'm a going back sort of a person. I think I'm a going forward sort of a person, and I'm very excited about what's ahead. And, and every year seems to be more exciting, and this sounds a bit bleh. She makes a <laughs> puke noise. Um, Every year is quite genuinely more exciting than the last. And, I mean, the last five have been incredible. I'm, I met Peter in 1990. We got married in 91. I got pregnant in... Oh, I signed a record contract in 1990 as well. Uh, I got married in 91. I got pregnant in 92. We moved house in 93. I had Jeremy in 93. I got pregnant again in 93. I had Chloe in 94. <laughs> you know, in 95, I did my American tour and my BBC sh own show, which is going to be a series so you know it's just professionally and personally every year just gets more interesting and and, and I've no now I've met the right bloke because I do think that has helped enormously it just seems like everything's crystallized I just feel that every year gets more interesting and more exciting and and I suppose my ambition is that I should continue to feel that way until I drop actually and it, it will eventually mean stopping singing but that's very difficult to contemplate because it's such an important form of expression for me. It is, it is what I am, in a way. I am a singer, although I do try and remind myself that I sing to live. I don't live to sing. I think it's important to keep it in proportion. If we may go back, though, just temporarily to your me beginnings. Humble beginnings. Me beginnings. <laughs> How do you feel when you look back now on your childhood and so on, and you've got all this glamour around you now, and yet it was quite modest in those days? It was very tough. I did come from South Yorkshire, which was a, a tough working-class area, and I was born in a council house, and my granny still lives in the very same council house I was born in. I had amazing parents uh, who were a great inspiration, both of whom developed themselves fully through their work and their life. My father began as a signalman for British Rail and then decided he wanted to develop himself intellectually, I suppose, and he took a correspondence course in his signal box. And I have fond memories of him tootling off down the street on his motorbike with his enormous tape recorder on his back, really TIAC thing on his back. So he didn't have uh, miniature cassettes in, in those days. Um, he fell off a couple of times and this machine got dented along the way. But he, would, he did a correspondence course, which he put onto tape, and got some O-levels and A-levels and went to, went to college and eventually became a headmaster. And my mum followed him into education and became head of music in a, a local school as well. So they were a terrific inspiration to me for personal development and it didn't seem all that ambitious actually to want to become an opera singer when my dad had become a headmaster. Um, it's always said though that you came from a very poor background. How poor were you? Uh, very. We were extremely poor. When I, when I was born we lived in a 
took them to down Derelict Cottage that my father renovated by going to the local building sites on his way back from the railways to see how drains were laid and to see how electrics were put in. And we couldn't afford a workman of any sort, so my dad did it all. He dug a cesspool and laid, laid drains and put in bathrooms. And I remember one chap from the council coming round and saying, you're going to have to move out next week, this house is condemned. And my dad said, why? And he said, they used to come around with a different reason every month. And he said, well, this month, it's because the ceilings are too low. And he said, my dad said, well, come back on Monday and, and we'll see what we can do. And he, he uh, couldn't possibly raise the ceilings in uh, over a weekend. So he dug the floor up and he dropped the floor by six inches. <laughs> so this chap, when he came back, fell in. <laughs> Both my parents uh, and my mum did everything. They did it together. I shouldn't say it was my dad. It was my dad and mum together. They did everything together and were formidable in their practical ingenuity. And that they've taught me and my sisters. We're all very, very uh, ingenious and practical on a practical level. We're both very improvisational and on a practical level. And Tell us about your sisters. Their oh, names got, and ages. Well, I have two younger sisters, Jill and Kay, who are very precious to me. Jill's two years younger than I am, or a year and ten months. And Kay is two and a half years younger than Jill, so there's just there's four and a half years about between right. me and, and Kay. So we're pretty close in age, two years and four years apart, roughly. Did you all share a bedroom and so on? Yes, yes, we all shared a bedroom. and um, Separate beds? Was it, was it that poor that you all had to sleep in the same? No, we had bunks. My dad built them. And uh, we eventually, as things got better, we bought the house next door, the yeah. cottage next door, and knocked through. And then eventually, as things got better still, we moved to the farm that my father still lives in because we always loved animals and always had animals when we were children. Um, what have your sisters gone on to do? Well, indirectly, they're in the music business too. My middle sister, Jill, and her husband, John, they run Electro Music Services in Doncaster, which is it's a sort of service industry almost. There is a wonderful uh, working man's club network in South Yorkshire, which was very much part of my background. There's a, a very, very rich, and this is ever so important to my upbringing, in my, within my upbringing, a very rich musical tradition and a very richly mixed musical tradition in South Yorkshire. Uh, and I was exposed to all of it. I had everything from very, very classical influences from my mother's side. I sang in uh, classical choirs and performed classical music all my life. But I also had the Working Men's Club scene um, from my father's side, because I've told you all about that. You know all this, okay, don't well, you? Tell us about your other sister, what she's Well, my, So my, my sister Jill and her husband run um, this shop that uh, services all, all the rock groups in the area. Right. Uh, it provides gear and uh, hires and repairs and sells gear to all the rock bands, local rock bands. And Kay uh, works with her. She's now mm -hmm. part of uh, the... It's a bit like Dallas, really. It's a sort of family concern, you could almost call it. So she works with her. And my brother-in-law... My sister's husband has a haulage business. Have you always been close, the three of you? Were you always close as children or did you squabble a lot? Both. We squabbled a lot, but we were always very close. Uh, but we've got much closer since we've been adults, yeah. and uh, now we've all got children as well. That's brought us even closer still. And I'd say we're very close, actually. Yeah. They, they have a, an amazing intuitive insight into, into my work when they come to see me perform. They often make uh, extremely pertinent comments and instructive comments, and I'm always anxious to hear what they think, mm. e even though they haven't had my training. They Do you know family will always tell you the truth? Oh, the truth, truth with knobs on, love. <laughs> absolutely, which I think is absolutely essential. You know, mm. It stops you ever getting too big for your boots. I mean, I'll never be, able, be allowed to get big-headed, even if I was that way inclined. They keep my feet on the ground, which is where I want them. So mm. I've got a huge family, actually. It's not just them. There's 50 or 60 of us all up in South Yorkshire, and I'm the one that moved away. And 
I need them very, very badly and go up there as often as I can. Did you or your family think that you would be the one that would go all the way, go all the way through? I think so. I think with hindsight, I've talked to my mum and dad since, and they, they have said that, looking back now, they could see that, in a way, I was, I was always going to do something a bit spectacular. They were, just weren't quite sure what. I think I was a born performer, you see. I think performers are born. It's as important an ingredient as having a good voice, really. If you haven't got the, the will to communicate with it and the need to be out there on the stage strutting your stuff, then your voice is no use to you. And I remember at college a lot of people who had much more beautiful voices than me, but who just didn't have that performing instinct, which is as vital, well, it's the most vital thing, in my, in my opinion. Uh, and that, that need just to get across the footlights and communicate emotion to an audience, that, that's so important. Do you think your ambition was due to the fact that you have two sisters and you were quite competitive at all? No, I don't think we were really competitive. And I was very different from them. Uh, we're very different, all three of us. You wouldn't think we were sisters in many ways. I was always very, very keen to leave home. Much as I loved everybody, I couldn't wait to get out there and see what the world had to offer me. I just de was desperate for experience of any sort. My parents were constantly in a state of extreme apprehension and agitation because they, they just were sure I was going to get into some kind of terrible trouble. Uh, they didn't credit me with any common sense at all, I don't think. And it's, an amaz it's amazing to them that I've managed to get this far without you know, getting into too much trouble. I do get into occasional deep water because I like to try things. Uh, you know, I like to... I like to do different things. I don't like to get stuck in any one rut. And I very much like interesting challenges, particularly physical challenges. And, you know, I, I will have a go. Have a go, Les. That's what they always used to call me. So. Well, I understand they used to call me Gobby Garrett. Was very well, that was another nickname, yes. <laughs> Gobby Garrett. I, 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 as you can no doubt, have no doubt gathered, I just used to talk a great deal. And, and make a lot of noise. I used to sing all the time. I think yeah. I must have been absolutely hideous as a child. Do you think you were spurred on by coming from you know, quite a tough background and so on. You wanted to do it for your family, you wanted to get some money in yes, the family and yes. so on. Yes, yes. Well, not so much the money. I think I was inspired to very much make the most of myself. I think I was always very, always encouraged to make the most of what I had and to take advantage of all my opportunities. And I did want to prove myself to someone or something. I'm still not quite sure what. Probably my father and, and mom, my mum and dad. But... Uh, it's only very recently, funnily enough, that I've, I've recognised my personal ambition. I, women, traditionally, were never encouraged to be ambitious. It was um, a, a thing men did. And I, I think my background was as sexist as most at that time. Feminism, you know, came in my 20s. Uh, and it took me until my mid-30s to actually own my ambition, if you like. I always would cheerfully say, oh, well, you know, life just happens to me. It's nothing to do with me, really. But I now realise that that's not true, that I, I am ambitious and that I do create my, uh, my work, that I do make my way. And I'm, now I've acknowledged that and owned that, I'm, I'm, much, more ha I'm much more content. I'm, I'm very happy to, to be pr proactive, to say, this is what I want to do with my life and I'm going to do it. What is this personal ambition, though, that you just recognised, as it were, that you were saying? It was an, uh, an ambition to be a successful singer, to be, and an ambition also to, to bring opera and classical music to a wider audience, yeah. because that was how I had it introduced to me. It was always accessible in our home, and when I discovered that some people were afraid of classical music, felt that they weren't sufficiently well-educated to enjoy it, I thought, that is ridiculous. You know, all you need is a spine little tingle. It's... Mm. 
it's not about being educated. It's about being sensitive. It's about be, being able to, to listen. It's about having emotions that are available to be stirred. Um, yes, you can appreciate uh, classical music and opera, as you can all things, really, on an intellectual level as well. But it's not a prerequisite for enjoying the music. And I've, I feel very strongly that, that music is to be enjoyed first and foremost. I, I am an entertainer. I just choose to entertain with classical music because it's what stirs me, it's what moves me, and I want to move other people with that music because I love the music. And that's a great ambition of mine. Um, Were you always sure you'd make it? Or did anyone, like a grandmother or something, ever say to you, you you've got stardust in your eyes, you'll definitely make it? No, nobody ever tried to say that to me, actually. They, my father was very anxious that I should have, as he would put it, a degree to fall back on, that I should have qualifications to fall back on, that was the expression, just in case. And I used to say, just in case, what? <laughs> you know, but, because I knew there was no way I would ever be interested in an academic career, even if I couldn't sing. It was just not in my nature to sit behind a desk. I have to be out there doing something that involves me with people in, in a communicative way. I would, that's just the way I am. And, and, and I... So nobody special said anything special to you, like, you know, you will be a star one day, I'm sure of it. Yes, actually, my school did. My school were marvellous. I think it's, it's every parent's job to protect their children from possible disappointment, to protect them, and that's what my parents tried to do. But it was my school's job, and they did this brilliantly, to push me out, to encourage me to develop my talents. And I think the two things happening in Harmony were, were brilliant for me. Because I did listen to my parents, and I did get a good um, degree, so, you know, I had something to fall back on. There were two people in my school, three people, actually, in my school, I suppose. Um, I had a peripatetic singing teacher towards the end. This was at Leslie Wood, my music teacher, and Mike Clark, our French teacher, who put on our, our shows, who was the producer of our shows, both, I think, saw my potential very early on That's and cool. encouraged me. This was Thorn Grammar School, lovely, lovely school, state, just school. state school, yeah. And then Vivian Pike who I'm still in touch with, I'm going to do a concert for her next year um, up in Sheffield. She was a peripatetic singing teacher who, in my sixth form, when I decided I was going to go for it, came and gave me lessons. They, they, they really encouraged me to, to go to the Royal Academy and get was, started. Was there ever any doubt in your mind from a very early age that you would be a star one day, that you would make it? There was never any doubt in my mind that I would make something. I wasn't sure it would be a star. I still find it difficult to call myself that. I still see myself as a developing twinkle, because I don't ever want to feel I've arrived anywhere. I don't ever want to make full stops. So I think I still feel I've got a long way to go. But no, I'm not a very doubtful person. I, I, I don't want to sound big-headed. <laughs> uh, no, it's not a question of being big-headed. No, I, I, I think I was committed to a particular course, and, and I had no doubt about that course. Mm. I had no doubt that I would be a singer, one way or another. I was unsure as to how that that course would unfold itself, to how how I would develop, and I've been very glad of of all the all the ups and downs that I've encountered, and the directions that the or the the variations in direction that those ups and downs have necessitated. To what extent uh, do you see yourself so as a pioneer for you're, women? You're asking me some very... You might not think people... You know, these are interesting questions. You maybe yeah, have a list of questions right. in your mind, but nobody's ever asked me that before, so I'm hesitating because I want to give you a really full okay. answer. 
Nobody's ever asked me if I ever had any doubts, so I'm having to think. Um, well, I just always see you as a very steely, determined woman. Nothing's going to get in your way, and I can't imagine anything ever. Steely? That's interesting. Well, well, in you seem steely. I don't mean in a nasty way. I just mean, you know, nothing could get in your way if you wanted something. I mean, professionally, I don't know. Well, I think you're probably right. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I don't know, it's just funny when you hear it said about yourself, when you've not actually ever thought of it or had it said to you before. Mm. Because you are what you are, and you just get on with it. I've just, that's really how I characterise myself. I've just always got on with it. Mm. And I, yes, I've always been pretty sure about what it is I want to get on with. Mm. And I haven't any time for wafty people, mm. in a way. Uh, I, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with with people who want to get on with it, I suppose. Mm. Which is why I like being here. I like being at ENO, because it's a, it's a very positive, forward-thinking environment, uh, innovative environment, in other words, that word I'd use. It's, it's, I feel very comfortable here, because it, it's here I find all the characteristics I would hope to find in myself. And those words I've just used, I would like to feel, I, uh, people would use to describe me too. And they're not afraid of experimenting with tradition here. You can't get away from the fact that m most of the traditional opera repertoire was written several hundred years ago. Mm. But that doesn't mean it has to be archaic mm. in its presentation or in its form. In fact, I feel we owe it to the public to uh, explore as many different ways as possible to make the music as contemporary and as relevant as we can. And that's what we do here, and that's what I'm into personally, as well mm. as as a company member here. Do you see yourself as a pioneer for women? Oh, God. <laughs> well, this do I see? Yeah, cool. It doesn't even <coughs> me think it'd be just I've a bit light, light and frothy and today. Well, I, know, I want to give you proper answers. I see this company as pioneering, so um, I suppose I would have to say, as part of this company, I feel... Yes, I have a. I, I am part of a pioneering team. team. What it's you're important to, to me to be, as well as an individual, a team player. I can't be completely a team player. No. I could never be completely immersed in in a company, and I don't think that com this company expects that. In fact, I know it doesn't, because it encourages us all to develop our individuality. It is very important to me to do that, as we've said before, to develop as an individual, and that's again why I feel so at home here, because they're constantly allowing me and encouraging me to do that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I have a very pioneering spirit, and I think I got that from my f uh, family. Uh, so, yeah, I guess so. Your determination to bring opera to the masses, as it were, as mm. you discussed earlier, was that as a result of finding it inaccessible yourself as a youngster? No, I never found it inaccessible. No. Did you feel uh, that was, your um, class of people, if I may put it that way, were less um, had less access to it than, yes, than the others? Then? That's that's um, more it. When I was a child, I never ever saw an opera. I never went to one. We couldn't possibly have afforded it, even if opera was available in our area, which it wasn't. Uh, that situation, thankfully, and I really want you to say this, if you say that sentence I've just said, you have to qualify it with this, please. That is no longer the, the situation. There are a, a great number of opera houses now throughout the country and touring opera companies throughout the country bringing the amazing opera that I love to just about the whole country. Well, there are certain areas that are still underserved, but there's a, now an enormous area of the country that has access to, to live opera. Uh, and also, the ticket prices now are within everybody's grasp. You can come and sit here for five pounds. Now, people pay a great deal more than that to go to the football or to the cinema. So, although top prices are still 
costly. I think the top price here is £45. The average price is, is just over 20 which I think is, you'll find, the same average for a, a West End musical. Uh, and you can come for a lot less than that. So it's, it's now different. And it's that aspect that I feel very pioneering about, that opera should be brought within the grasp of a wider variety of people, not just from the, from the point of view of, of, of ears, but of purses. Was there a particular moment or anything that happened that made you want to have this particular campaign? Was there, was there a moment when you, you couldn't get into an opera or anything and you thought, damn, why shouldn't I get into Yeah, it? when I got to college and I realised I'd never seen an opera and lots of other people there had. And, it, and I thought to myself, how do I know it's what I want to do and I've never seen one? And I thought that's wrong, that that should, should be the case. And the reason I wanted to do it was because I'd always loved the music and I'd heard the music on radio and sung it because I, I, was, I was lucky enough in having parents who could play the piano really well and grandparents and could sing really well, so we learnt the music. So that's, I had access to the music first before I had access to anything. And I was taken to Covent Garden by one of the staff producers there who was producing an opera at the Royal Academy of Music where I was studying and he happened to have, he was, as he was staff producer on this particular show, he had a spare ticket and he took me and I sat in, in my jeans and tatty sweatshirt, I sat in the stalls and I thought this should be available to everybody. <laughs> it really should. It's amazing. It blew my mind away. It was the first opera I'd ever seen. Actually, it's a light. it was the second opera I'd ever seen, but it, it was the first opera I got right close up to the front because I was in the stalls. And it was the first opera I ever saw as music theatre because it was The Marriage of Figaro, which I just think is an amazing... And it was with Teresa Stratus and Richard Van Allen. And I just, I just felt this is, this is real music theatre because they were such good actors. Uh, and that's when I realised that the other side of the coin, the, the fact that it's not just about good tunes, it's about really good acting. And they were, they were pioneers at that time. Nobody, it was just starting then in the, in, the, in the 70s. It was 73 that I went to college first. And it was just starting to be seen as, a, as, a, as, as credible drama as well as, just, as, well as good tunes. And that's, that's when I got really excited about it. I thought this is the ultimate form of, of drama because you've just got all these amazing, powerful forces coming together. If you can't blow people's minds with this stuff, what can you do it with? And that's when I thought, well, you know, I don't want to do musicals. I don't want to do recitals. I want to do this most powerful of all art forms. And that's, that's it. All these TV programmes you do, like And I thing. want everybody else to know about it. I want everybody else to share this feeling, this excitement that I had for that art form. Just, just, it was the size of it, the, no, the scale of it, because you can have very small operas, but this, nonetheless, the, the, the scale of the passion, emotional potential, is enormous, mm. and that's what I want to share. All these things you do, like even flashing your bottom and deflate a mouse. And, oh, I'll give them that and, up. Uh, I know, I know that. But, um, I'm a you know, now. But these TV programmes with the Birds of a Feather Girls and things oh, like yeah. that, are they all part of your campaign to make it a more mass appeal? It's not that calculated. It really isn't. If it seems like a good idea at the time, I'll do it. It's more if it appeals to me as an idea, if it seems like good fun. And if I think it's... Yes, then, then if I... And, how can I put this? It, they tend to go hand in hand. I just find instinctively that I think it's because I come from the background I do, because I come from a working class background. What appeals to me appeals to most, most other people. You know, I, I, have, I think I have very um, everyday taste, if you like. I, what I find is that what seems to me to be a good tune or a bit of good fun 
or a very powerful moment will appeal to other people the same. That's what I, think, I, I find. Well, um, for all the masses of people out there who are appreciating what you're doing I and everything else, there are some, yeah, that's, I appreciate that's that. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I, am a, I mean, I feel people, have, people seem to have the idea that opera singers are... A race apart. Are a aloof. race apart, are very aloof. That's it, exactly, Peter. And, and don't understand what, what people truly like to listen to, or worse still, feel they should be educating them. I hate that. I hate the patronising idea that in some way people need to be educated. You know, I mean, yes, by all means, I like to introduce people to a new good tune I've just discovered, you know, but my ears are the same as everybody else's ears, you know. Um, what I enjoy listening to is what everybody else enjoys listening to, I find. Um, I suppose I'm terribly common, <laughs> in the best sense of that word. I'm a terribly average person. That's going to give the wrong impression. Down to earth, yes, I'm a very down-to-earth person. That's right. There are still a lot of um, purists in opera, a lot of people who are quite sniffy about the things you're doing. And stuff. Do you actually experience opposition? Have you ever had any rather sinister messages from people saying, how dare you do this, what are you doing to this great art form and things? Well, no, I never have, to be honest, because I'm always incredibly careful to do the best job I possibly can. I, I never cut corners. I, I perform to the very best of my ability, whatever that is, always. And whilst ever, uh, whilst ever the product is good, basically, I suppose, is, is the jargon, but whilst ever my performance is genuinely the very best I can give, then I don't think I can be criticised for in any way cheapening the art form. Some people do see you as a rebel, though, do you think? Well, I, th I think possibly they do, but th what's wrong with, with, with rebellion? I think um, everyone has a healthy respect for that because that's how we all develop. Um, they see, yes, that's how we progress. And I think even the, the, the more traditional element of the audience, which I think is what you're talking about, uh, respects that and realises that someone has to move forward uh, and try things. And, yeah, I get it wrong. You know, some of the things I've done backfired, let's mm. say, uh, I don't think I've, I'd flash my bottom again, <laughs> quite honestly. Have um, you ever had any nasty notes slipped under your dressing room door or anything there? No, I honestly haven't. Mm. No, I really haven't had na not nasty ones. Mm. Not nasty ones. Uh, I've had one. I've had suggestions. Mm. <laughs> Can you give me an example? But, well, no, mostly to do with. Uh, oh dear, I'm just racking my brains now. Right, sort of tone it down, this sort of thing. No, honestly, mm. nobody's ever mm. told me to tone it down. A few critics have in, in print, and I've listened to them actually, because I would like there to be, oh god, yeah, I'm getting myself into trouble now, but I would like there to be more dialogue between critics and performers. Mm. I think that the critic's job should be a very valuable one, mm. and I think it's been undermined in recent, <coughs> recent times by bad writing, mm. and I think the art of good cultural criticism mm is a very important one and, and needs to be fostered and nurtured because I think there is a place for it. And I have a great respect for certain critics, but I also have uh, a death wish for others. <laughs> uh, no, a death wish is too, too, too strong a word. I have a great respect for certain critics, but I have no time whatsoever for critics who write badly or inaccurately yeah. and, who, uh, and who are needlessly destructive. 
May I ask you if you feel that the fact that you aren't at the Royal Opera House is anything to do with the fact that you, you're sort of fairly outrageous and outspoken and so on? Now you're the first person to ask me that. Congratulations. I've been waiting for that for years. <laughs> I do perform for the, for the Royal Opera Company. But not. But you're quite. You. What I'm trying to say is, you're quite right to say I've never performed in the Royal Opera House, and uh, I think I like to think it's because they can't find an appropriate vehicle for me. I have performed in concert for them, and uh, I've been happy to do to do so. Um, I don't know really what the answer is to that. Yes, I think you're probably right. I think it probably is because of the image I have, the rebellious image that I have, that um, I perhaps uh, wouldn't suit their traditional outlook. You sense then that there might be a sort of a mafia out there saying no way Leslie Garrett ever gets in here? No, I don't think it's like that at all. I think the job of any casting committee in any opera house in the world is to cast appropriately and I obviously have a, a very strong personality and character which is, which is known about mm. and an opera, a, a casting committee has to cast not just for their uh, the particular opera, but they have to cast with the style of their company in mind. And it would seem I am not appropriate to the style of that company. I think that must be the answer to the question. But How much uh, chance I don't do you want there to is make it? any enemies there, particularly. No, no, no. I, don't, I don't have any enemies there at all, on the contrary. Have you given up hope of working there? How much not, chance at all, not at all, not at all. I'd be more uh, interested, to be honest, in performing in their proms season, mm. where the ticket prices are more accessible because uh, that matters to me, uh, than I would in their main season when the, the tickets are more costly. Do you know the person that, that is sort of very sensitive about, about me, about it, is my singing teacher, actually. She, she just hates it that I haven't sung at Covent Garden. It doesn't really bother me. I mean, as my cut runneth over. I, I couldn't want for, for, for more interesting work and for a better life. So I, I'm just very happy with where I'm singing and what I'm doing. You know, because it's great. I mean, it would be completely um, churlish and ungrateful to complain. I have mm. no complaints mm. about the way my life and my career are going. Mm. I really don't. What other ambitions and aims do you have in your campaign to bring opera to the masses? And what, what other things do you want to do in your career? I want to extend my personal repertory. I feel my voice has grown, particularly since having the children. I'm 40 now, and I'm very excited about the next decade because things just seem to be getting better and better. And I think now... Now that I've hit 40, I'm going to be uh, able to perform some of the more mature roles uh, and I can leave some of the juve leads behind. And I'm really excited about that. I'm looking at Arabella, for instance, um, Massonet's Manon, uh, I'm very keen to do, a Mimi, it's high time I did a Mimi. I'm desperate to do My Fair Lady somewhere. I think that's a wonderful role. And to, to extend my repertoire, not just in terms of maturity of operatic role, but of variety and range. I'm looking at all sorts of different composers, Sondheim particularly. There's a lot of uh, very good music of the 30s and 40s, sort of Hollywood hits, if you like, mm. that I'm hoping to make another album using that music. I am also very anxious that the music I choose to sing is appropriate to my voice. I don't, for instance, think I'm a jazz singer. Mm. And although I sing certain cabaret songs, they're very carefully selected and mixed with other songs of the same era by more classical composers, just to demonstrate to an audience what was going on in one particular era. You know, I mean, Gershwin 
was basically around, I think Gershwin and Puccini were, were contemporaries, for instance, or maybe I've got that wrong. But certainly Gershwin and Stravinsky were contemporaries. Yes, that's a better example. Or Cole Porter. Uh, well, the, a, a very good example is Schoenberg. Schoenberg wrote some wonderful cabaret songs. He wrote cabaret music. Uh, and I find it, programming is fascinating to be able to mix up composers who are known, perhaps are, are, are wrongly pigeonholed uh, you know, as, as, as cabaret composers when they're actually more, they are classical in a sense. What I'm ambitious to do is to go on the road. I'm actually ambitious now to take music out right. rather than be in an opera house and, and receive the audience. I am very, very keen to, to emulate the pop singers and to, and to tour. I want to take my music out to the public now, physically, and link up with my record company in order to do that. Um, that's, that's a big ambition, I must admit. I'm very keen to do more telly as well. I love being on the telly. <laughs> I really do. I think it's great. <laughs> and it's, uh, again, a fantastic opportunity to bring more music to more people, which is what I want to do. Was your keeping your Yorkshire accent, was that something you were determined to do? Did anyone ever tell you you should get elocution lessons or anything like that? I'm from Yorkshire. That's it. It's just part of me, like everything else is part of me. Mm. Why should I change it? Yeah, they did suggest I should have elocution lessons, and I <laughs> told them what to do with them. <laughs> that was at college. Mm. Uh, and the work I'm doing at the moment with the uh, Royal Throat, Nose and Ear Hospital that I told mm. you about, they've never suggested I should change my accent. All they've suggested I should do is support my speaking voice and raise it slightly mm. and not talk so low, but uh, nothing about accent, so... No, it's not a conscious thing to keep it or to lose it. It's just there, you know, mm. uh, and it's mine. And, mm. and I'm from Yorkshire and proud of it, so mm. why should I lose it? Can I talk about your family life and so on, because that's something we haven't touched on. Were you also very ambitious to have a family one day and so on and get married and settle Definitely. down quite early? At what age did you want to settle down? I felt like this expression, get married and settle down, I don't see them as being in any way... A, a synonymous, I suppose. Uh, in that, since I've been, since I've met and married my husband Peter, my life has exploded. I've, I'm far from settled. I'm settled emotionally, and I'm sure that's what you mean. But uh, from the point of view of my career, it's just gone cosmic since I met Peter, and it's all his fault. <laughs> I, I do believe that when you meet the right person, all sorts of energies are released, and that's what happened for both of us. His work's now, I think, developed since uh, meeting me. Uh, and it's really exciting and lovely to have that happen. Uh, it sounds a bit Mills and Boone. And, we, and we, did, we did fall in love immediately. I mean, he asked me out for lunch and I moved in the following week and we got married and had kids straight away. It's almost like, you know, Wednesday I met him, Thursday we got married, Friday I had kids. Uh, and yes, I did always want children because it just is an amazing opportunity for, for love. It's an amazing opportunity for emotional expression and for understanding yourself better and for forgiving, actually, for, for loving. But I would never have believed, if anybody had tried to explain, and that's, perhaps that's why nobody ever does, the passions involved in having children. It is a passionate business. They're, they're enormous emotions, and I find them incredibly difficult to deal with. Much as I'm involved in a passionate world with my work... You know, you look at your children and you could just explode with feeling for them. Mm. And, and they're just there in the, in, in the front of your face, of your mind and of your face, all day, every day. I can't bear to be away from them, so I don't, I don't really do very much work abroad anymore, mm. although I'm, I'm hoping I will be able to as they get older and take them with me. I've just come back from a four-day trip to the north of England and to Ireland, and it was agony, you know. 
it's it's a physical yearning. It's dreadful. It's worse than than missing a lover. It really is, and and it's much more powerful. And it's like that, you know. I'm in love with my children. I mean, it's it, it's extraordinary, but and wonderful. I asked you earlier if some people thought it was a bad idea for you to have a Yorkshire accent in your career. Did some people ever say to you, you shouldn't really have children until your career is really underway or out the way? I think people warned me that it would affect my career and that I should think very carefully about it. Is that another thing you said, stuff you two, I'm going to do it anyway? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I've basically always done just what the hell I've wanted, to be really honest with you. And that makes me sound so really nasty person, but I've always done what I've wanted to do. And, and what I've always wanted to do has always involved communicating with other people. Uh, that's at the very least what, what being a mother is. And that's what I get off on, just communicating with, with people, with whatever I've got to offer. That's what it is. It's just using what I've using myself, using what I've got to offer, making the most of myself, I suppose. All I knew was when I met Peter, I'd met the father of my children. It was a, a very, very powerful, uh, primitive feeling that there he was, and he, he, thank God, also felt exactly the same that he'd met the mother of his, and that's why we just instantly got together. Do you have any philosophy as to why it took you so long to find the right person? Did you think that maybe somebody was telling you, get your career sorted out? Because you almost oh, gave see. up, didn't you? In fact, you told me well, you had I did, yeah, and with the business of children, I was told I couldn't have them, uh, which, was, uh, which really made me determined to do it, of course, red rag to a bull. Well, the first doctors I saw when we discovered this pelvic kidney thing, um, you know, said they, didn't, they thought it would be very difficult for me to have children, so I had to. What you're asking is, was I consciously a career girl? Did I consciously think, right, I'm putting men on one side until I make my career? No, I never did that. Men have always been really important to me. Relationships have always been really important to me. I was never out of a relationship from age 15 until just before I met my second husband. And then, and only then, did I consciously say to myself, I need to take a break and work out, you know, where I'm going wrong, because... There'd been um, a succession, I suppose, of failed relationships with what I finally realised, a, a recurring pattern. I finally realised there was a recurring pattern to these failed relationships and I thought, I need to be on my own and really... Take stock. Take stock. What I, what I needed to do was, was learn to rely on myself, was learn to be completely independent because I basically went straight from, from home to college and to relationships within college. And I, 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 I never lived on my own, really, to be honest. <laughs> I've always lived with somebody. No, that sounds terrible. Well, I went straight from home to uh, a shared student environment at college, there were a group of us, uh, to marriage, to my first marriage. After my first marriage failed, I went back home, made that my base. And then I, I got involved again and had two or three other relationships which were live-in relationships, uh, that went wrong through my 30s, because I guess my marriage broke up at the end of my 20s. In a nutshell, I took a year out and I lived on my own and I repelled all borders and I decided I had to understand myself and I went to counselling and it was great. It was the best thing I ever did. And I really became a truly independent woman who could rely on herself, who didn't need a man to define her, and who, un uh, who under finally understood herself, understood, I, underst I began to understand my needs, my ambitions. 
what makes me tick? And I think I'd relied on men to tell me that up until that point. That's it in a nutshell. And then I was ready to meet my final and everlasting relationship, my Peter. It's also said, though, when you stop looking, that's when you find. Yes, and that's I, basically seems to be what yes, happened with you. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I stopped looking. In fact, I positively, as I say, rebelled all borders. I was not going to have a relationship. I was going to be by myself and have a relationship with myself. I just wanted to understand myself. So I think I always knew eventually I would find someone. I wanted to reach a point where I could say to myself with confidence that if I never met anybody, I'd be fine. And the minute I was able to say that, I met Peter. And that, that was it, because I bought a cottage in the country. I thought, right, that, this is it. I'm going to keep my flat in London as a pied-à-terre, and I'm moving to a, to a cottage, and I'm just going to get on with my life. It seems to me <laughs> your, your professional motto, as it were, is to make things happen, that if it's not happening, you will absolutely create it for you. But in your personal life, you can't do that, can you? I presume that was a big difficulty for you, wasn't it? Well, you can never make another person do anything. Yes, I think it's true to say professionally I make things happen. Oh. But personally, uh, you know, you, you can't make things happen with another person. It has to be a meeting of a, a like-minded and loving individual. And as soon as I met that person, then anything is possible. And together, everything is possible. Mm. And that's, what, that's been my experience. How ambitious are you for your family, bearing in mind how ambitious you, you've been for yourself? Are you equally striving for them? I'm ambitious for them to enjoy life. That's my first ambition for my children. I'm ambitious for them to have a wonderful social life. To be able to get on with other people and to communicate with other people, I think, is more important than anything. I think everything follows that. I'm ambitious for them to fulfil themselves and to make the most of their gifts and to enjoy doing that. Yeah, and that's it in a nutshell. I'm not in any way ambitious for them to become singers. I wouldn't push them into anything at all. I want them to fulfil their potential for themselves, not for me. Are you going to be one of these parents who's going to say, now look where I came from, I struggled from this, and then, what about, you know, you should appreciate it. No, I'll never be that sort of parent because I had that said to me and I hated it. <laughs> because however poor things were in my childhood, it was much worse in my parents' childhood because they were brought up in the war. No, I want them to be contemporary children and contemporary adults, by which I mean people who can take advantage of what contemporary society has to offer them. I want them to, to appreciate that everything's available if you just ask, and nothing's impossible, yes, and anything is achievable if you just try. Will you be having any more children? I'd love some more children. I love being pregnant. I just feel wonderful when I'm pregnant, and, and I love having children, but I think it's an old theatre maxim that you should quit while you're ahead. And I'm 40 and I've got two smashing kids. And what's more, my husband's gone suddenly very grey. <laughs> so I think out of respect for... He's an amazing husband. He is, at the very least, an entirely co-parent. He does more than half of the child-rearing, I have to tell you, and he does everything. You know, we, we just we don't have a demarcation lines at all. And I think there's there's only so much energy in in two people and I think we're using all the energy we've got with the careers and the children we have so we're going to call a halt.